want to talk today a little bit about uh, a passage from Hebrews chapter 12. But I want to introduce it a little bit with my experience at Evergreen, where I spent uh, close to 10 years working with street youth, uh, both as a pastor of a street church and as uh, the director of Young Street Mission's Evergreen Drop-In Center for Street Youth. Um, the shot there, this is, uh, this is Young Street 381. Interestingly enough, uh, they've sold the building. They're moving over to Spadina because of the redevelopment of Young Street and actually moving toward more, where more need is. And you might have seen some of those articles in the paper. But when I started, my son was three years old. And you can see on that picture how, uh, how he looked. So he's now 27. But um, that good-looking guy on, uh, no, back one. That good-looking good guy, too, that's my son. But uh, the other good-looking guy is me, in case you don't recognize me, because I look so older, now, uh, much older now. But my son would come, and I started when he was three years old at Evergreen, and he, he would come with me because uh, we were still involved with another church, Stone Church in downtown Toronto. And so um, I'd come and, and take him with me uh, in the afternoon as we prepared for our evening service, because honestly, street churches just don't work in the morning. Um, so we did Sunday night service, and so we brought, I brought my son along, and he helped us set up, and then I would take him to Stone Church, which is a few blocks away, uh, where my wife was still on staff, and uh, would drop him off at the nursery there, and we'd come back and do our evening service. But he loved it. He would run around that space. It's maybe about half the space of this, uh, this auditorium, a little narrower, uh, much shorter, and he would run back and forth. We'd be up at the front preparing for worship and for, for the service that night, and and he'd be running, and there were like glass doors like at the back there onto Young Street. And so we'd run back there, take a look out, run back to me, and take a look out and run back. And, and I think, honestly, he was a little bit intimidated by the, the group of kids, uh, street kids that were hanging out at the front. You know, they were all uh, somewhat disheveled, uh, often, you know, with older or dirty clothes, sometimes with ripped clothes. And so he used to... Uh, uh, every, every scary person he, sa he saw, um, he said, um, those are daddy's friends, or all daddy's friends wear ripped jeans, right? So he kind of, uh, that's not really unusual today, but back there it was unusual. Um, and so he went home that night, and, and he was talking to Bridget, and he was saying to her, Mommy, I was at the street church today. And she says, oh yeah, tell me about it. She says, there was a man there and he had bright red hair. And he says, oh really? Yeah, and it stuck straight up. Guy had a mohawk, right? Just like, it stuck straight up like this and went all the way back down. And he says, mommy, how does that man sleep at night? <laughs> Another day we were walking down Young Street uh, after we'd kind of finished preparations, beautiful sunny day, walking down and, and we were at... Uh, where Sam the Record Man used to be, uh, where Ryerson uh, is, is now. The, and and we, we stopped there, and as, as we stopped at the light, these two motorcycles came down the road. And they were the typical kind of motorcycle gang members, if, if, if there is such a thing now. But they had re uh, leather on, big bushy hair, big bushy beard, uh, helmet with a spike on it, you know, chains on their leathers, and these two huge Harley Davidson motorcycles. And as they stopped at the light, they were just revving their engines, and it was overwhelmingly loud. 
My son is grabbing onto my leg, peeking around my leg and looking at them and just kind of watching. I didn't really take any notice of it until they roar down the street and he kind of pulls on my pant leg and he says, Daddy, those are your friends, right? (laughs) That next shot is with uh, Jared and his beautiful wife, uh, Emily. He was married three years ago. And uh, just enjoy some of the stories. He's still as precocious as he ever was. But we want to look at a passage of scripture, Hebrews 12, and which says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Let us consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We all lose heart sometimes, don't we? Just like Jared clinging to my pant leg. We grow tired and discouraged because sometimes as we get older, we own those fears a little more deeply. Sometimes we just want to give up. Other passages tell us, uh, and translations talk about this, this same concept in scripture that where they talk about taking courage, not being afraid, don't let your hearts be troubled, fear not. It's a theme in scripture. Other translations of this passage talk about not losing your purpose or your courage in the Phillips translation, or that you may not be wearied in your soul, or be faint or faint-hearted, so that you may not grow weary in your souls and lose heart, failing in breath even, losing our breath. So literally it means to break down your heart and soul and destroy it and dissolve it. When I was at Evergreen, we would have, again, our, our services, I would preach on Sunday evenings. And again, the door was open to Young Street. People would walk in during the service, walk out. There were occasionally kind of disruptions at the back. It was fairly usual to just see that coming and going all the time. And one of these young men that came in from time to time, his name was Steve, and he was a native um, from, from one of the reserves in Northern Ontario. And he was living in Toronto and he was a, one of those uh, in, uh, institutional school children. So he was taken off the root reserve, put in a, in a parochial school and, and raised there and then placed with foster parents. And those foster parents were Christians and um, honestly he was a little confused about his heritage. He knew he was native but he also had this affinity for Christianity and didn't know quite where he fit. So he was there that night, he had been drinking a little bit, and he yelled from the back of the room. He says, Pastor Mike, because I was talking about love, I was talking about how much God loved us. So he yells out from the back, he says, Mike, prove to me that God loves me in my situation. I don't know if you've ever been interrupted in a sermon, but for me it was, it was a first. 
And I didn't quite know how to respond. And it was sort of like the, the room closed in on me. And I, I felt like I was suffocating because I couldn't get breath. I felt like I was in this tiny little space. I know I finished the sermon. Uh, I have no clue what I said. Uh, I know I somehow responded to him. And, uh, and, but after that, I was just kind of in a bit of a daze. I, I didn't really know quite how to respond to him. And the reason I didn't know how to respond to him is because I knew his situation. I knew how desperate street life had been for him. I knew he was addicted to drugs and alcohol. I knew he was homeless. I knew he'd struggled to find work. I knew he struggled to find friends. And I wondered how is, how can I actually help him? How can I make a difference in his life? And I actually went into this, uh, this bit of a funk that lasted for a little while. And of course there were other things going on as well. That, that put a lot of pressure on us at, at Evergreen, uh, situations where um, street youth were kind of banding into their own, kind of rebelling against what we were doing, uh, and, and we had some difficulty with the police and staff turnovers and not enough money. But I realized that, that I was facing a crisis at that moment. I was, I was wondering. And two things hit me. Number one is that I was confronted with a fear and with a temptation. The fear was maybe that I couldn't really prove to him that God loved him because maybe God really wasn't powerful enough to break through his addiction, his misery, his difficulties to make a real and tangible difference. That was the fear in my life. And the temptation was to respond to that fear and that wondering maybe it would be enough just to clothe him, to feed him, to help him find work, to provide maybe some life skill training and, and see if we could get him stabilized a little bit. We all fear this. We all face this fear and this temptation. The fear that maybe God isn't big enough, not real enough, or that maybe a spiritual answer, a godly answer, a, a biblical answer is not enough, or it's fake, or it doesn't have enough impact. And then we're also tempted to say, maybe I can do this on my own. Maybe something that I do by myself will be sufficient to meet the needs that are there. You know what, I think that's the definition of losing heart. We stop believing that God is big enough, and we realize that our own efforts at fixing things aren't enough. Let me repeat that. We fear that God isn't big enough and we know that what we do isn't enough either. And so we're stuck in that place where we realize that our own efforts fall short and we're afraid that God isn't going to come through. So we settle for survival, not believing God will come through. What's your suffocating moment? I told you mine. That moment when you're fearing something that's so much bigger than what you are. So big that you're afraid that God isn't even big enough to handle it. When you've stopped hoping, stopped trusting, and maybe even stopped believing. And you're tempted to take your own way or the easy way out. Maybe it's just a little nagging thing that you know, one of our first world problems. Can't lose that extra 20 pounds or 30. 
car is a lemon, you don't know how, what to do about it. Or maybe more serious, that person that you thought was the one turns out to be a jerk, a cheater. Maybe it's because there's never a lot, enough check left at the end of the month. Your brother calls and says, I'm at the police station. Could you come bail me out? You just got a diagnosis. And the news isn't good. Or your spouse says, this just isn't working anymore. Maybe you got a phone call that your child had an accident. Maybe your teenager says, you know what, I don't believe in that crap anymore and you can't make me go to church. Maybe your boss calls you into the office and says, we're facing cutbacks, we have to let you go. An unexpected bill that just puts you in the deep end and you can't pay. What's your suffocating moment? Where have you lost heart? This passage of scripture that we looked at today talks about a number of things. So we're just going to look quickly at four elements of that passage. The first thing is the passage tells us to develop an eternal perspective. That we need to fix our eyes on Jesus. On the unseen. The things that, that we don't see with our physical eyes. So sometimes we have to back up and see the bigger picture. You know, it's interesting, all through scripture, it links this idea of eternal perspective with not losing heart. Uh, in the Old Testament, it talks about Elisha, you know, going into this uh, place where the, the king of Aram comes around and, and they're attacking them and his servant gets really nervous and really loses heart. And Elijah says in, in 2 Kings chapter 6, where he says, fear not because those who are with us are more than those who are against us. This unseen perspective. 2 Corinthians 4 talks about that too, where it says, therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So when we fix our eyes on Jesus, we focus on the answers. It's not up to us to provide those answers. In, uh, in John, in the Gospels, Jesus is talking to his disciples where, you know, he appears to them and, and Thomas says, you know what, I... I Unless I stick my hands, my fingers into the holes, I'm not going to believe. And then he says another time, he says, Jesus, show us the way. You know, uh, and I don't really know the way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life. He says, well, I, I don't know the way. And, uh, and Jesus responds with that. And it's interesting at the end of that passage where there's this confusion among the disciples. He finishes off by saying, peace I leave with you, peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. So as they're facing uncertainty, he says, grasp onto this eternal perspective. The second thing that this passage talks about is this, this openness to admit our failures, to admit that we're fa- uh, fallible. I think sometimes, you know, we gather together in churches, 
and we don't really talk about what's real. And, and, and I think that's, that's changing and it's improving a little bit, but I think it's still a reality. This reality that says everything's okay. I think sometimes we're afraid to admit that we're in trouble because we're afraid to be judged by the people around us. I had a friend uh, who had contracted cancer and this woman um, stopped going to the church that she had been going to for 25 years to attend another church because she didn't want to talk to the people who knew her the best. It was like, no, no, I'm just going to go to this other place until I figure out what's going on and then I'll come back because she wanted to be healthy before she told people about her problems. It kind of misses the point. You know, that God says, you know, when you're weak, that's when we're strong. When you don't have the answers, when you're desperate, that's when God comes through. Church has taught us not to be desperate, not to want, not to have any needs, not to long or to yearn or have desire. We're supposed to be happy. So our response really is, you know, admit our weaknesses, confess our sin, that sin that so easily entangles us. We all know that we all struggle with it. So sometimes it's difficult, though, to admit it together. The third thing that this passage brings together is this idea of journeying together. A couple of years ago, I went to uh, California with a friend of mine. He is a, uh, he loves biking, and so a friend and I went, went there to visit him in California in the Los Angeles area. And so he rented us these really, really nice road bikes and uh, took us out on the, the, the GDR, the Glendale, no, GMR, Glendale Mountain Road, which is one of the famous kind of bike trails for, uh, for people in California. Unfortunately, it's very hilly as well. And so we were a little less experienced than he was. So this picture here is, next picture, is him riding up the hill alone. The next picture is, yeah, there. So that's not me, that's, that's him making, making the hill because we drove up the big hill first, parked the car and then took our bikes out. He rode it up all the way. But, but we went riding that day for, for a number of hours and it was a, getting close to 100 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. And, uh, and as we were coming back, um, my friend and I got a little ahead of the other two that we were biking with. And he said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to go to the car and I'm going to take the car and go back to these guys, pick them up, and then, then I'll meet you in the place where, where we started today. And so I said, oh yeah, great, uh, no problem. I, I was really enjoying the day. I felt like I was doing better than everybody else. And, uh, and I thought, okay, let's go. And so as I was riding up that last probably half hour part, smaller hills, things that I'd, I'd done much head, uh, steeper hills than, than what I'd done. It was the most difficult half hour of the whole day. And the reason was that as I was traveling with others, there was this sense of banter going on, encouragement, a little bit of friendly competition uh, to see how we were doing. And they pushed me and they spurred me on to love and good deeds. They spurred me on to do better in my, in my riding. And that last half hour was so difficult for me. There were, I'd never gotten up off my bike once to go up a hill. I was so tempted just to push the bike the rest of the way, just because I was alone. But this passage of scripture is plural. 
if you've noticed that. It says, since we are surrounded by such a great, great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, for us. Let us fix our eyes. This is a, this is a plural passage. This is a community passage. This is about doing things together. And as we face situations that are difficult, we need to do them together. We need to walk together. We need to ride together. We need to believe together. We need to trust together. The fourth thing, the fourth thing is that we need to persevere. We need to continue on. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Run with perseverance the race marked out for you. Hold on to the promises that God has given you. Perseverance isn't a long race. It's many short races, one after the other. So as we finish off, I want to just encourage you to, to keep those four things in mind. The fact that you know, God has called us, God has gone before us. So that we need to develop this eternal perspective. We need to you know, admit that we're fallible. We need to journey together and we need to persevere. Maybe you want to know how Steve's story turned out. Steve is one of those, those kids who was on the street for years and years. Uh, the last time I saw him was about probably seven or eight years ago. Had coffee with him at the corner of Young and Gerard. And we were talking a little bit. He's continued to struggle with addictions. He's found housing. He's occasionally been in a relationship with someone. He's gotten a job from time to time, but he's struggled. He's still tr- struggling. He's still going through. But he has made that confession of following Jesus and then trying to integrate his, his native heritage into that. He made some good choices. And in terms of my story, as, as that time went on, our response was to just trust God. And so three or four of the staff came to me one day after that event, after I'd been in a funk for a couple of months. They said, you know what, something's not right. Can we pray? And I said, sure. They said, well, we don't want to just pray in your office. We want to pray through the building. I said, okay, that's a good idea. And we want you to be with us. And I said, okay. So 6.30 in the morning, says, let's go in there. They cranked the music. We started walking around praying. We had a couple of Pentecostals there, me too. Uh, we, we prayed in the way that we like praying and uh, there's some tongues going on and uh, other things like that. We walked around the block and prayed. We sang and prayed. Uh, we prayed for the situation. And honestly, I didn't feel any different. I didn't feel like, oh wow, we just suddenly had a breakthrough. But about seven or eight years after that event, I was uh, driving with one of, one of the staff who was there. We were driving to Peterborough, actually, and we were talking in the car, and we were ta- talking about those days. And I said to him, you know, those, that was a really tough time. And, you know, he's, he has a fairly strong evangelistic gift, and, and I said to him, you know, were, were, were kids coming to encounter God and, and coming to know Jesus during those times? He says, oh, Yeah. I says, well, well, how many? What happened? And he says, I was thinking 20, 30. 
he said uh, during those five years after that thing, four or five years, he would say probably 100, 120 kids per year. I've never been in a church where we've seen 120 people come to know the Lord every year. He says probably about 120 kids a year over five or six years. And I said, why didn't I know about that? I was the director. (laughs) And he says, because a lot of those kids just came and, and we talked to them and we shared Jesus with them and they made a decision to go home. We never saw them again. And he, says, and he said to me, honestly, our best, success, our best success stories we never hear about because they make the right choice and they move away from where Evergreen is. And so I was encouraged. God had come through in ways that I didn't expect, I didn't see. And he says that to us as well. And as we finish off, I just want to read uh, that passage from Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul prays for us. And he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide, how long, how high, and how deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. And then he prays this. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So let's stand together. And James, I did ask you to to benedict, but I'm I'm just going to close in prayer, all right? Father, we come to you again in the the, the powerful name of Jesus. The fact that, that in every circumstance, you've gone before us. You follow behind us. You understand our coming and our going. Uh, You understand where we are. You understand our hurts. You understand our suffocating moments. And in every one of those circumstances, you are present. Right now, for those who are are saying, "I, I don't know if God is big enough. Lord, I pray that in a tangible way, you would be. That you would show yourself real. You would show yourself present. That you would show that, you know what, you've been walking beside us this whole time that this is not a surprise to you and that uh, your grace is sufficient for us and that you have been doing exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine, even though we couldn't see it. So open our eyes, Lord, to, uh, to see things from this eternal perspective, to see things that are unseen in our physical world, because that's what faith is really all about, that we can trust you for things that we don't yet see, that we can trust you that you are walking with us, that we can trust you that you are in the work, in, in, at work in the lives of people around us. So Lord, as we go from here, I just pray that you would be doing those things, that you would do, be doing immeasurably more than we can ask or th- imagine according to the power that is at work within us. So now to you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever.
Amen. Go in grace.